All life is born of Gaia, and each life has a spirit. Through their experiences on Earth, each spirit matures and grows. When the physical body dies, the mature spirit, enriched by its life on Earth, returns to Gaia, bringing with it the experiences, enabling Gaia to live and grow. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast Review of Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. That's a fairy tale, Doctor. And I'm sorry, but we don't have time for that. Part of Now Playing's video game movie review series. So I gather this will be somewhat of a rough ride. Doc, you've got a talent for understatement. Hosted by Arnie. You don't believe any of this, do you? Justin. Yes, a compatible spirit. And Stuart. It's gonna be one of those days. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Spirits? I thought we weren't supposed to use the S word. Listener discretion is advised. Let's do this thing and get the hell out of here. Today we're discussing Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within, starring Ming-Na, Alec Baldwin, James Woods, Donald Sutherland, Ving Rhames, Steve Buscemi, Perry Gilpin, and directed by Hiranobo Sakaguchi and Sakaki Bara. I am Arnie, the now-playing co-host of your fantasies. And I'm your Gaia Stewart. And this is Justin. I'm wallowing in the uncanny valley. (laughs) Well, we are back at the older video game movies after reviewing some of the newer ones and this is it guys up until the new tomb raider this movie had the highest rotten tomato scores of any video game adaptation care to guess what score it got uh (laughs) 52 45 (laughs) and it's number one now i did check angry birds is number two at 44 (laughs) (laughs) well you know this is a video game series that i only know from its mammoth reputation final fantasy has been around since 1987 at least in japan i don't think it made it its way to the u.s until the 90s i didn't hear about it until like I was getting out of video games, but it has maintained a 30-year run. I mean, this is almost as good as Mario here, and without an iconic character. Yeah, it is one of the top-selling video game series of all time, but you've got to take Japan into account there. But Final Fantasy is a game I hadn't heard of either. There was a version for the Nintendo, there was a version for the Super Nintendo, and those were released stateside, but... When I heard about it was in the late 90s. Final Fantasy VII was this graphically rich, amazing game. Everybody was talking about it, and I'm like, well, hell, I can't jump into Part Seven. I don't know, Parts 1 through 6. But this is an anthology series. None of the games connect with any others. And I assumed that it was a Zelda ripoff, that this was role-playing, right? Dragons, elves, unicorns. Fantasy. Yes, thank you. I thought maybe I was the only one. If you would have asked me what 
Final Fantasy was. In my head, I had it as some sort of medieval sci-fi mashup. Yeah, the fact that this movie is going to go to outer space totally threw me from what I thought this series was about. Well, sure, you think fantasy, you think Lord of the Rings, you think Middle Earth, you think old-timey and wizards and swords and milady and Renfair. Yeah, swords are definitely part of the icons. They always use swords. This is the thing is, for the longest time, it was a series created by... Hironobu Sakaguchi. And the reason it's called Final Fantasy is because he was done. You always hear these stories. It was like Stan Lee. He was tired of writing comics. And then his wife said, do one more, do it your way. And he made Fantastic Four and revolutionized comic book history. And here, the reason it's called Final Fantasy, because I'm like, if you're on part 12 of Final Fantasy, that first one wasn't so final. It's like the never ending story part three. (laughs) Well, that actually fits. I mean, that story never ends. (laughs) But here, he was just going to make one last game and get out. And I went back and played it because I didn't know about about it when it was out for the Nintendo. They'd released a couple in Japan that we didn't even get over here. There was several times of that Japanese snobbery like Super Mario 2. They're like, those Americans, it's too difficult for them. Let's give them this other silly game and call it Mario in their land and we'll have the real Mario 2 that we don't get here until like 2000. But each one is its own story and it can be in the past, it can be in the present, it can be in the future. The thing that connected them was Hironobu Sakaguchi. Because my big question is, if you don't have recurring characters, if you don't have a recurring place, I mean, in the Marvel Universe, you've got your characters that keep coming back. In Star Wars, you may not have recurring characters, but you've got the galaxy far, far away and the political things. If each Final Fantasy is in its own reality with its own thing going on, how is it connected? How is this movie Final Fantasy? And... What they said is it's called Final Fantasy because it's from the mind that created all of the Final Fantasy games. And on one of the bonus features, they kind of gloss over it. But one person does quickly say it'll sell better if we call it Final Fantasy. (laughs) Yeah, fighting fantasy is what they originally wanted to characterize it. And I don't think there's enough fighting here, at least not the kind that we're used to with Double Dragon and Mortal Kombat to really bill it as such here in Western countries. I would argue that the name Final Fantasy is just way too generic to carry any gravitas from a casual observer. Over 30 years, like you've said, I've come to know the name, but it nothing about the property has ever stuck in my head. No, and when I saw that back with Final Fantasy VII and such, what I saw was fairies and sorceresses, things like that. So it did just scream fantasy land to me. But I did go back and I played the first Final Fantasy game for the Nintendo. It was actually on the NES Mini and it was on my Raspberry Pi. And it was like Zelda in graphics in that you are a person walking around in a fantasy land with trees and attacks. But instead of real time where like in Zelda, you'd actually hit your sword or throw your sword and shoot monsters. It was like Dungeons and Dragons. It was turn based and you were a squad of four people. And as long as one of you was alive, you could keep on playing and then you could get back to some necromancer who would bring your other friends back to life. But it was a turn-based squad of four. 
I actually really got into that game. On paper, that does not sound like my kind of game. I've played this game for like 20 hours. I'm obsessed with leveling up and I'm grinding and getting all the gold and buying new armor. It's basically a dungeon crawl is the goal. You've got to go into this dungeon, get the crown, return it to the king. I've already rescued a princess. It's rather fun, though, for all of its retroness. Yeah, I decided I needed to play one as well. It seemed like the one that was the turning point, the one that was time to come out the same year that this movie came out was Final Fantasy X. They made an adjustment to the game. Arnie, I think you know the game as having an interface where you move from maps and then the characters into the screen you're moving through. Here, it's entirely 3D based. It actually looks like this movie. And I played it on PC. They updated it recently, re-released it with newer modified graphics. But this came out in 2001, and it was so popular, it's the only one they actually made a sequel for to the actual stories. That the character that you play, which is a futuristic soccer player elf... (laughs) Yeah, if you heard me, his homeworld gets destroyed and you team up with wizards. And yeah, I think you're eventually going to team up with a whole bunch of characters and fight this creature from space called Sin. But yeah, you're experiencing that in a 3D realm. And it was hard for me to tell the difference between cutscenes and the actual gameplay. And it was also hard for me to control. Uh, Too many buttons and Stuart doesn't do well. But (laughs) I think I will eventually try to beat it. I haven't put too many hours in and I'm always hesitant to put too many hours into video games, but I'm intrigued and I'm going to keep playing. You know, I'm right there with you. I knew nothing about this series going in, but I want to dive in a little bit. Maybe I dove too far off into the deep end because I started with Final Fantasy 13, not knowing anything about this, not knowing anything about the history. So I'm just looking at this as a game. And I'll tell you, I mean, it looks cool. It's in that same kind of 3D realm that Stuart's talking about. The graphics are sharp, and it's a sci-fi thriller at this point. I'm playing as a character, and I can't even remember her name, but I've got a sidekick, and we break out of some sort of prison transport that we crash into these platforms on a futuristic planet, and now we're fighting our way across these platforms. And I really quickly realized that this is one of those games where I'm not actually doing the fighting. I'm making the decision on what my character is going to do, and then they go do it. (laughs) They roll the dice, except you don't even get to roll the dice. (laughs) Exactly. And that turns me off. This is not my style of game. For me, a video game needs to be responsive to the button as I'm hitting it, or I don't feel like I'm engaged. And then maybe that's why I tend to play more sports games where I'm actually the one shooting the puck into the net or I'm the one kicking the field goal with a football. It feels more connected to me. Well, maybe you should try Final Fantasy X because you can play that wiffle ball sports soccer thing. It's kind of like FIFA, but you run upside down in space. And I've never had any less interactive game than when I played Madden. I mean, that was all pick your play and then just watch it happen. Oh, you might have been playing coaching mode, though. (laughs) No, no. I was playing Madden for the Genesis. But I went back. I wanted to play the first and see where it got its start. And even though it was turn-based, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it, actually, because it was really low-key. I could walk away mid-turn. I didn't have anything holding me there. And the sound mattered so little because it was such an old game. I just listened to music while I played it. But I wanted to try the newest one, too. Final Fantasy XV came out just in 2016, and its Windows release is very recent. It just happened in March. So it's just the newest of the games. Now, by this point, Sakaguchi is no longer with it. You know, the thing that made Final Fantasy Final Fantasy was that he did it, 
Now what makes Final Fantasy Final Fantasy is that Square Onyx is the company that's releasing it, and it's kind of their flagship game. But I'm not like Stuart, where if it's more than two buttons, I'm done. But I do find myself with a little bit of a phobia of how hard are the controls going to be? You know, my Xbox controller has four buttons, four triggers, and then a couple other buttons that could be used to sticks. How much am I going to have to know all of this? This game was seamless. It took me in. I walked through the tutorial. I instantly knew. The thing that seems to be, were both of your games four-person squads? I hadn't gotten to all four yet, but I think eventually I would have collected them, yes. Yeah, I think that's where mine was heading to, but as far as I played, it was a two-person squad. Yeah. What I think the overriding theme is, is that it is a four-person squad that is constantly doing the adventuring. Here, I was a prince betrothed to a princess. It was almost like now, because I was driving a convertible on some desert streets, but yet there were kingdoms and there was an evil overlord that had taken over most of the earth and I was the prince of the kingdom that was still resisting. So it was a really weird mixture of fantasy and modern, but... I couldn't control all four of my guys. This, Justin, is probably a little bit more like what you'd want in that the battles are far more street fighter with swords than they were turn-based. You actually pull your weapon out, you hit the button, he's going to slash. Or you can throw your weapon and you can do all these jumps and flips and combos and things. And you don't ever control anyone except the main character, but you can, using the D-pad, tell one of your friends, hey, go do this move that you do, and then you can follow up with that. Oh, interesting. You know, they used to have a mechanism like that in the original Battlefront series back in the day where... Yeah. If you were playing as one of the clone troopers, you could be like, all right, you guys go this way, you guys go that way, and I'm going to go straight. Or they would back you up or whatever. But yeah, that's the type of thing that I can get on board with. And you mentioning that reminded me of Republic Commando, which I played also where it was a four-person squad. This kind of has the same thing that if somebody gets downed, one of their partners can run to them and pick them up. And it's if everyone dies that it, your game is over. So, Oh, fun. I really, really enjoyed the game, but I noticed it was going to take like 40 to 60 hours to play the entire game. I really want to go back. I also got sucked into a mini game of like pinball that I played for three hours. <laughs> just, I don't know what it was there for. I'm like, I hope when I get out of here, I'm collecting a lot of loot by playing this pinball game. I want to play once and I was just really good at it. <laughs> so I played pinball to like 2 a.m. And it's a fun game though. I can give a strong recommend to both Final Fantasy 1 and 15. I loved both and I'd never played them. Well, where you said you have a little bit of anxiety where a new game to you might have too many buttons and moves to learn, I get anxious when I come across a game and I find out that there's inventory management. <laughs> <laughs> I just never know if I'm supposed to be buying the right thing or if I'm supposed to save enough money for the thing that's coming up next or whatever. That to me is just like, oh, this is too close to real life. I'm trying to escape real life. And now I'm doing budgeting all of a sudden, you know, it's <laughs> did uh, 15 keep that inventory type of thing going on you definitely picked stuff up and upgraded weapons and things i think that's just one of the tropes of final fantasy as well as you have that kind of thing going on it, it was in the first one and arnie you touched on something that i want to pick up on here sakaguchi i think when we're talking about the ways in which video games and movies influence one another this is a real milestone the creator of the game is actually now finally going to direct 
the movie version. This, to me, leads me to believe that we might have, true to its Rotten Tomatoes score, the best video game adaptation ever because it's going to be shepherded by the man who knows the property the best. This is not the first case of that. Chris Roberts, developer of Wing Commander, directed and wrote the 1999 Wing Commander movie that we're going to be discussing. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, to me, it felt like a breakthrough, but I guess I look forward to that game then. But uh, (laughs) it it intrigues me to know Hollywood was willing at that point, you know, end of the millennium, to let video game people take the director's chair. Well, I wouldn't say Hollywood let them, so much as I'd say... Square, that was the video game company. Eventually, they were bought by Onyx, which is why I know them as Square Onyx. But they were Square Games back then. They just started up their own division called Square Pictures. And they took a lot of their animators from the games and hired a lot more. A bunch of people flew from the company's base in Tokyo to the Square Studios in Honolulu. And they made this movie. This movie took four years to develop, if you can believe it. I mean, this looks incredible with all the detail and the textures and the fact that it's such a near-photorealistic CGI movie. And they spent years in various software. I listened to both commentaries. All right, I read one of them because it was in Japanese. And it had subtitles, so I had a subtitled commentary. And then I had the English commentary. And they're talking about using Maya and all these various things. Justin, you'd probably get more out of these commentaries than I would about the layer effects and the particle effects and everything. But everything they did here was pushing the technological envelope to the point that when they were done, they had to go back and redo some of the first things they did because the technology had evolved so much it didn't match. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe they should have taken eight years then. Why stop at four? What I remember about Final Fantasy, and I have seen this movie before, is that in still images, wow, that really looks like a woman standing on an alien planet. Watching the move... They weren't there yet. It's very obvious once you actually see these things clunking around, bumping into one another, and we're expected to believe that it's a kiss. Yes, Hollywood would have given them studio notes. We can't release this movie. This movie isn't there. Actors aren't going to be put out of jobs anytime soon if this is where the technology is in 2001. (laughs) Yeah, there were rumors of that. The lead character, Aki, here, there was talks about actually putting her in human films and just having this CGI creation like in a movie interacting with humans. The fact that this movie bombed made that not happen anymore, but... Yeah, they made a movie about that called Simone. Oh, yeah. Are you saying Street Fighter wasn't a human movie? Wasn't she interacting (laughs) with other humans? Oh, you mean like a la Roger Rabbit, but reversed. Yes, I'm not talking about (laughs) Ming-Na. There was a period where she lost the when. She was just Ming-Na. That happened during the single guy. I don't know why that happened. I didn't ask her. She was on ER during this time, and I was watching ER, and it was always Ming-Na in the credits and here they did this they did a lot of testing and i can't imagine the process of this they had the script and they hired actors to come in and read it and for a first time picture from a company they went big steve buscemi ving rames and we're talking they cast this back in like 97 so they were really on their tarantino peak alec baldwin before he got fat (laughs) Not that any of that matters. This is not motion capture. Unlike Polar Express, which came just a few years later, these actors are only going to stand in front of a microphone. They're not going to put dots on. Some of this movie was mocap, but not those actors. Huh. So they did mocap people in 
various things, and then other parts of this is hand-animated. That's what I found most interesting, is certain scenes, like when they're rolling and moving, were all mocap, and some of it they just did the hand animation for. But they hired these people, and they read the script, and now they have the voices so they can match the lips, and they can do all the facial expressions. But then they have rewrites, because they realize as they're making the movie, this doesn't work. So they bring the actors back, Oof. and they re-record. And then they take it to a test audience, and the test audience says, we don't like the ending. So they bring everyone back, and they re-record, <laughs> and they make a new ending. This is part of the reason I imagine it took four years, is because they kept going, all right, we're going to cut this whole chunk of movie, it's too long, we're going to replace it with this new chunk, get everyone back, let's record some more. That's also why I imagine it ended up being such a budget suck. I mean, $140 million for this movie, they could have shot it live action for that. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to take on an endeavor like this, you better make sure your story, your plot, your screenplay are all airtight and ready to go. Otherwise, you're right, you're going to get caught in this tornado of reanimating, resetting the stage and all that stuff. Sure, you don't have to pay to rebuild sets and stuff like that. But you still got to bring everybody back. You've got to go back into the rendering software. Like at this time, 2001, there might have been some silicon chips out there or whatever based computers that could do it pretty fast. But 18 years later, we're still not at the peak of what we're going to be. I can't imagine how slow they were then. They said hours sometimes for frames. Sure. Wow. And you say you don't have the cost of building sets, but you have the cost of hiring people to design new sets. And honestly, Justin, you might enjoy the bonus features because some of this isn't even computer generated. The skies, the clouds, they used classic matte paintings for that because they just couldn't render a cloud. I did read that. I swear to God, the eagle in this is real. It's <laughs> <laughs> the realest thing in this whole movie. I'm like, that's a real eagle. It was not. They said they couldn't mocap an eagle. That was just all animated. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and it was a hawk. I thought it was an eagle, too. We're us Americans. There's actually a lot in this movie I didn't get until I listened to the commentary where they're like, yeah, American audiences don't seem to get this. And it's because it's part of Japanese culture. But you talk about not having a tight script and spending $140 million. I honestly think what we have here is a macro version of Tommy Wiseau. Sakaguchi wanted to make a movie. And he was really rich and had this big company. And so he just threw tons and tons of money at making a movie with some big names. I mean, right off of Fargo, Steve Buscemi coming in to record for him. Columbia, this was their first animated release since 1986's Care Bears 2, A New Generation. <laughs> so they weren't really into the animated thing. This was Square doing their own thing and, you know, fake it till you make it. And they faked it for $140 million. And it did gross poorly here in the U.S. I think it was about $30 million. And internationally, it didn't do much better. I mean, the problem is the box office, while bigger abroad, still couldn't recover. This is, I think, by any definition, a big bomb. Yeah, global, $85 million, budget, $140 million. It was an expensive venture for them, and they never did it again. Yeah, it might have worked as an advertisement, though. If you look at the fact that Final Fantasy X came out the same year, that was a big hit. They spent big on that as well, and I think maybe just raising the profile of Final Fantasy, maybe it was worth it to them, and Sakaguchi got to hang out with some Hollywood stars and claim he's a director. And I should say, when I said they didn't do it again, that's not entirely true. 
This studio did go on to make one other thing, and we have reviewed it. Yes. Final Flight of the Osiris. The I believe we called it the best segment in the Animatrix. Yes. A different director was at the helm of that, but made within a year or two apart from one another from the same company, and with some of the same problems, quite frankly, with the animation style. And there have been other Final Fantasy computer-generated movies. They've been direct-to-video stuff, kind of like they've done with Resident Evil. Final Fantasy XV has a prologue that was a movie they released on YouTube that was completely done with the Final Fantasy XV engine. And so it gives the prologue of the kingdoms before you start the game. So there has been several animes that tie in directly to the games, but this was their only theatrical venture. Why am I afraid that's the future of movies? That they'll just be prologues to people playing interactive 3D games. That's <laughs> sad to me. But at this point, uh, it was still movies dominating the box office and dominating my heart. Arnie, why don't you give them the plot? We'll see how Sakaguchi does. The year is 2065, and the Earth is under siege. 34 years earlier, a meteor crashed into Earth, bringing with it intangible aliens referred to as phantoms. The phantoms attack humans and rip their spirits from their body. The remaining humans have huddled into barrier cities. The barriers meaning the phantoms can't go in. The ruling council, along with General Hine, voiced by James Woods, believe a new super laser called the Zeus will fire into the crater and destroy the phantoms. But standing against Hine is scientist Dr. Sid, voiced by Donald Sutherland, and his apprentice Aki, voiced by Ming-Na. These two subscribe to the unproven Gaia theory, that the Earth has a spirit, and when we die, our spirits return to Gaia, helping it to grow. They think with this theory that if they can gather eight types of spirits, they will create a negative energy wave that will eradicate the phantoms. You follow me on that? <laughs> I think it helps if you smoke a little weed or drink a little sake. Hey, I tell you what, it's a perfect setup to a game. I'm ready to push start. Let's do this. When the movie starts... Aki is gathering the sixth spirit in destroyed Manhattan, and she is attacked by phantoms but saved by a military squad consisting of Ryan Whitaker, voiced by Ving Rames, Jane Proudfoot, voiced by Perry Gilpin from Frasier, tech and pilot Neil Fleming, voiced by Steve Buscemi, and led by Aki's former lover, Gray Edwards, voiced by Alec Baldwin. The crew continue to assist Aki as she finds the seventh spirit, and they find out Aki is infected with a phantom, held at bay from killing her by a negative energy field. But it is slowly escaping that field, and the phantom is giving her dreams of the phantom's homeworld. See, the phantoms are actually ghosts of dead aliens. The meteor is the core of their planet that died in a war. The group discover the eighth spirit is in the crater where the meteor landed, and it's a suicide mission to go get it. But things get worse. Frustrated at the council's inaction, General Hine drops the barrier to let in some phantoms. But once they're in, Hine is unable to raise the barrier again, so he flees to Zeus and begins to fire in the crater. But his laser doesn't kill the phantoms, it makes a super phantom larger and stronger. Aki and the crew head to the crater, but everyone is killed along the way, save for Aki, Sid, and Grey. And when they get there, the eighth spirit is gone due to Hein's laser. The Zeus overloads, and Hein dies in the explosion, and Aki is found by a phantom that gives her the eighth spirit. And while she has the wave, she holds Grey's hand while his spirit is taken by a phantom, 
which releases the eight spirit wave and allows the angry phantoms to become content spirits that merge with Gaia as a hawk soars and credits roll. Now I should add, I've seen this movie now four times. Mm. I saw it once in theaters opening weekend. Oh. I went because of the cast. I mean, Steve Buscemi, Ving Rhames. <laughs> Stop it. They were not that big. You gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Honestly, I was seeing Armageddon 2 with Ving Rhames instead of Michael Clark Duncan. Ben Affleck and Alec Baldwin have, they both played Jack Ryan. And I would argue that they tried to make Captain Grey look like Ben Affleck. Oh, yes. It's one of the weird <laughs> things about this. So yeah, I was there opening weekend expecting an action-packed video game movie. I went with a friend of mine, and I went with Marjorie, and all three of us walked out with this oddly muted reaction of, well, that was really dull. And so, coming back in, I gotta say, this was one of the movies I was not excited to revisit, because I just remember negative energies. Negative spirits have surrounded me since 2001. (laughs) I saw it when it came out on DVD, and I remember I wanted to see it in theaters, but it was an attraction repulsion thing. I remember the trailer very well. It begins like this movie begins. We're on this beautiful alien landscape. We see a photorealistic woman staring into the distance, and then she moves. And it's like, wow, when you're just frozen in stasis, it is absolutely beautiful. And when they try to move it, it's marionation. It doesn't look that different from Thunderbirds. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I can see that for sure. I'll argue you say Thunderbirds. No, this is a million times better than George Lucas's 2008 The Clone Wars. And that was seven years later, and that, sir, was Thunderbirds. Yeah, but that was a problem of both overstylization and the technology not quite being there yet. But this is a movie that I was aware of when it came out, but I couldn't have cared less. I saw the trailers. I was like, yeah, that looks hokey. I don't care that they think that they're breaking new ground. I'll wait to hear how it goes. And then I never really heard anything about it. So I never really thought about it again. And, you know, over the years, I'm sure it's popped up on HBO while I've been in the room and I've seen bits and pieces there. And as a passerby, the animation didn't grab me enough to be like, ooh, I got to sit down and see what the story is. So, yeah, this is my first time sitting down with the movie for the podcast here. And it's DOA. I'm just going to call it out right now. You don't have to wait to the end. This is a not recommend because they can't pull it off. This is photorealistic only on the surface, but it is painfully unrealistic once the drama kicks in. I mean, there's a kiss in here that's just forehead slapping. You can't accept that this movie is going to replace flesh and blood actors. I will argue the opposite. First of all, in still image, I never thought this looked photorealistic. It looked always like a video game, an impressive video game, but there was always something about the skin, something about the uniform. It looked computer generated from the first trailer. That's not a negative thing to me. That is not bad that it's not photorealistic. I actually prefer the look of this movie to that Polar Express you mentioned that gives me nightmares. I can't sit through the whole thing. I literally get so creeped out. That is the scariest movie I've seen in the 21st century is the Polar Express. (laughs) And I think this movie is amazing technologically. Watching it again, watching it on the 110-inch home theater, and then watching it again on the smaller screen, the detail of this, the hair movements. When they do close-ups, there's pores in the skin. The characters have crow's feet. 
Yes, sometimes the lips don't move quite right with the words. Yes, sometimes when they interact, things feel a little off. But I'm going to applaud this movie that this was made 17 years ago. I still think this is the height of computer-generated animation I've ever seen. I think it's dated very poorly, and it was unconvincing then. I can't believe you're going with it. It looks bad. It just looks flat out dramatically. They couldn't sell nothing from this. I'd rather see it performed by sock puppets than this stuff. <laughs> I'll split the difference between both of you because while I can agree with Arnie that it does look beautiful, like the technical side of it and having a little bit of a knowledge of what goes into stuff like this, I can definitely appreciate the time and effort that went into bringing this to the screen. Considering that it's not my $140 million that went into making this movie, I'm happy to sit back and say, okay, so... We've got some big names. We've got animation that looks pretty good. I mean, it's not like food fight bad. You know, it's not It's not like we're talking about like pre-render graphics here. I mean, you know, so I guess I'm taking it as, all right, it's either this or a traditional hand-drawn animation. Tell me your story. I'm going to go with you. That's where I'm at, too. I am not going to be turned off by these graphics. I'm actually turned on by these graphics. I'm not going to give a movie a recommend just for having good graphics because, I mean, I didn't give Avatar a recommend just for having amazing 3D and good CGI back then. But I do think that this is a pro in this movie's favor. Okay. I just want to put it out there. I'm not with the movie. But I am probably guessing of the three of us, the one most versed in... Japanese animation, I've seen a lot of them, particularly at this time. I was watching a whole bunch and have been a fan ever since Akira. So I like the style and I recognize very quickly that the story is pure Princess Mononoke. Arnie, you weren't on that show, but it definitely celebrates Japanese Shintoism and the idea that the natural world has spirits. Here with this dream that they're going to unfold, I think, seven times in this movie before we finally get to the end, on this alien homeworld, we're going to get the origin for the Phantoms. And I did see Princess Mononoke. I wasn't on the show, but I wanted to keep up with the show. I had to edit the show. So I wanted to watch it and see, yeah, this is definitely an anime story. And I do think that's something that turned me off in 2001. I hadn't seen much anime back then. I think all I'd seen is The Giver and Voltron. <laughs> so mm. I wasn't really digging the story. I think now I'm more open to this kind of tale. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming at it too. You know, back in the day, this is definitely post-college for me, but I had some roommates that were super into anime. You know, we watched Akira and stuff like that, Vampire Hunter, and, you know, I kind of left it in college. Nothing wrong with it, it just didn't grab me as the type of thing that I felt like I needed to dive deeper into in my own personal time. But sitting down for this, I was like, sure, let's take one of these traditional anime stories and kind of give it a futuristic twist with an American backbone, I guess. Well, I think that's why the main character is Asian. I don't, you know, specifically, is she Japanese? I don't know, Aki. I tend to think so. But at the heart of this, the main character, this conceit, the idea that within her lies the answer. She has these dreams, and she's infected with this phantom, and she just needs to dive within herself to find the answer that will explain to the rest of the world how to deal and live with these spirits. I got the sense early on, I'm wondering if you guys did too, that this was, for all its influences of James Cameron, not going to be aliens. 
that these phantoms may be attacking her in New York, but that they would prove to be docile and controllable and not going to ever be a real threat. I didn't know that from the beginning, no. And I remember thinking back in 2001, that was really disappointing to me. I wanted this to be alien, you know? I wanted this to be Starship Troopers. Yeah, very much so. That it's going to end up being more human versus human. I guess the closest thing I could kind of come to is the abyss instead of alien. No, it's a James Cameron greatest hits by the end of it. They got Titanic <laughs> in here too, but yes, clearly they're using that as a Western frame, but the heart of Japanese animation, these themes about nature and mankind, they always put it on the militaristic human as the bad guy. I just knew it, even though it was like, yeah, all these monsters are coming at her. I'm like, yeah, they're not going to really hurt her. And my thought was, I have a name for somebody who believes their dreams show the way to salvation. Crazy. You do not make her the hero. You make her like the loon. I mean, that's like the Brent Spiner role on Independence Day Part 2. No, she's running around collecting weeds. I'm like, ooh, can I smoke it? <laughs> but not even the conceit that they're in the future and she has the technology to actually record her dreams and play them for other people. That didn't take it a little bit out of that mystical, hippy-dippy-ish type of realm for you? Listen, I understood the movie was going to tell me her dreams matter, but if we're in a war... And somebody comes up to me and says, my dreams have the answer. I think I'm going to go with science. <laughs> well, this movie tries to straddle that bridge. I think that's one of the interesting things about it is that it actually purports to be a spiritual movie taken from a scientific framework. This is a doctor, after all, who believes, it really comes more from her mentor, Sid, but the idea that we do have souls. We do have a force, energy, that can be measured by scientific apparatus, where it's actually blue, and that <laughs> they it sort of, in some ways, mirrors this red phantom energy that came to Earth in the meteor. You know, they can't quite find a correlation yet. It's going to take them all of the movie to realize, oh, alien ghosts have a red Gaia and we have a blue Gaia. But the idea that God is from below, I think it's established early on. One of the first shots, they give a POV from under her feet, which I thought, boy, that's really strange. But it's a God's point of view coming from the center of the earth. And I'm going to tell you the... Japanese commentary explained a lot of things in this movie that I didn't get, but she's stepping on a phantom. It's a little, like, baby phantom under her foot. I thought it was perhaps the weed she was going to go pluck, but mm -hmm. it was a phantom. Oh, yeah. I guess Spirits Within is a, a apt title because it's not really preaching any specific theism, per se. I'd say it's Shintoism. I mean, the Japanese, there is a long tradition of them looking at nature as a religion. This is a common theme in the Final Fantasy games. A couple of things that, if you've played the games, you'll know. The theme of Gaia is something that was very much on Sakaguchi's mind. Apparently, his mother had died, and he was really facing the thought of what happens to the spirit and this belief in Gaia. And also, the name Sid is something reused in multiple Final Fantasy games. It's not the same Sid, but Sid. So there's a couple of connections with the Final Fantasy games from this time. He was really exploring that Japanese belief in the Earth having its own soul. But I do think for Western audiences, this is going to seem like contrary to any kind of Christian theology or any religion they'd probably be exposed to, that God is a flowing pool of 
blue glow in the center of the Earth is just not a concept uh, we've ever really come up with here. Sure. The closest thing, you know, would probably be Native Americans, you know, have quite similar beliefs to Shinto. But from a visual standpoint, where we're sitting at now, in this point of the movie, they can't see the phantoms with their bare eyes. We're only seeing the invading phantoms through the eyes of the military men because they have special goggles. And I didn't get that either. When she is in New York City, she fires this flare, and I don't know what exactly she's doing. The commentary explained that flare makes them visible. Because there's one moment where Alec Baldwin's character, Grace, says, Why can I see them? And I'm like, you mean you haven't been able to this whole time? I thought they were just these orangey, transparent things. But yes, they can see them with special goggles. They can see them if they use flares. When they go through the barrier, it makes them visible for a period. But realistically, if you're Joe Schmo on the street, you could just have your soul sucked out of you by a phantom that you can't see and never know. Which must be why most people are dead. This is a very underpopulated world. They travel to Tucson. We hear about San Francisco. New York has been reduced to, I think, just Brooklyn under a circus tent. I think most people have, just because they have no line of defense, have just had their souls sucked out by these phantoms. Yeah, we find out General Hine lived in the barrier city of San Francisco, and the barrier cities fall. The phantoms attack and get through the barrier, and Hine was there when his wife and his daughter were killed. And it must be why the Baldwin character, it is so weird, because he does look exactly like Ben Affleck, he moves like a (laughs) Thunderbird, and he sounds like Alec Baldwin. I'm like, I just, I don't even know, I'm so dissociated from this main character, but he is our male lead and our romantic foil for Aki. He gets infected in this attack. They have a whole body scan procedure just to make sure that no one got in contact, and the surprise is that Aki is also infected but has found a way to contain it. I think that they kind of tip their hat pretty heavy on that. She has a whole lot of panic about being scanned. I think we know when she's helping him out that she's got one in her too, but we're wondering why she needs to zap it out of him, but she's not concerned about zapping it out of her. It was weird that she didn't want to be scanned and she said she could pull rank and not be scanned. And then when They find one in gray. She runs through the door. She never is scanned. So that made me suspect that there was something she didn't want people to know. But yeah, it's like this weird game of Missile Commander, the way she has to go through and fire the laser to kill the phantom in him. I didn't see... The commentary told me if you look during the city attack when they're running from the phantoms, one touches Gray and he got it in him. I didn't see that on two watchings right now. No, I didn't see it. Throughout this movie, I'm going to be a little bit confused by whatever rules of fantasy they're setting up here as far as what actually can kill you. If this was a video game, you know, I need to know where the hit zone is. Like, can I actually pass through this phantom if I go fast enough because it's a slower process? Or am I going to get infected and slowly die? Or is it going to suck my soul directly out of me just by touching me on the back? I can't quite make heads or tails of what the danger from each of these phantoms is. I'll say this about Japanese animation. Nobody does tentacles better. I really do like the main method it seems to be there's these giant crab ones that have long tentacles and they can just slither inside you and just rip the blue right out of you. It's a delightful animation and I do think the best visuals in this are when we have tentacles on screen. Yeah, 
because, I mean, I mentioned in the plot summary, these phantoms are all ghosts of aliens. And the aliens were bipedal. They didn't look human, but they walked on two legs and they had two arms. But there's these giant phantoms and... It's revealed, or it's a dropped line in the movie, that the big phantoms would be like if Earth was destroyed, and we had whale ghosts and elephant ghosts. That's basically, these giant phantoms are that planet's versions of whales. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing is just the life, all life, from that planet. Yeah, and I think every Japanese animated movie I've ever seen goes to that trope. Miyazaki for sure goes to that trope of all life is sacred and equal. And I think that is in stark contrast to Western philosophies where we learn Earth exists for our pleasure and that we go on and probably the animals don't. So it's an uphill battle to get America and Western countries on board with this concept. It will be a challenge for people. It's cumbersome to try and figure out what's going on. It doesn't feel natural. But if you were a Japanese audience, I think it would feel much more familiar. You're right. The majority of Americans identify with some sort of religious belief. And very few of them, I think, would sit down and draw you a picture of what's going on in this movie as far as what they might believe a god or an afterlife looks like. Yeah, that it comes from the bottom of the earth. Again, we always associate that with hell. The fact that that is God and that our souls are all going to go to that and form into that. That we are, in fact, bits of matter made up of God. It's an interesting contrast. And again, I think an uphill battle for audiences to grab onto. I think the animation style is also going to be an uphill battle. It's not surprising to me Americans just didn't turn out for that. I don't see what there is here to grab, particularly when we see the quote-unquote fight scene and it does not deliver in on adrenaline it works a little bit on fear the first fight scene in manhattan and they're running from these phantoms and perry gilpin's character is firing some kind of bazooka that makes one explode into flames it looks cool and it works more on the level of fear than action though like who's it gonna grab which one's it gonna get when we finally do see it rip a soul out of a person, it's pretty disheartening. And so this movie does have that anime feel where I always associate with anime serenity. There might be fights, there might be some action, but in the end, you're achieving balance and your harmony. In this movie, too, there's a level of serenity even with the fear. There's a real reluctance in labeling things evil. You're seeing things out of balance, and to correct that balance, things have to come into play. But yeah, there's no real villain here. Everyone just has misdirected anger. And yeah, I don't know what pissed the whales off, but probably their planet exploding and them flying here in a meteor. And so now they just aren't to be accounted for themselves. They're whales, after all, and ghost <laughs> alien whales at that. Right, and I would argue that the closest thing we get to a villain is going to be General Hine. I mean, we, after all, we do see him bossing people around, and I think he actually pulls the trigger on somebody, doesn't he? Or does he just allow the other guy to die later on when the uh, attack happens in the office? He's willing to do what it takes to use that cannon in the sky. He is sold on the idea that the cannon in the sky will kill them all. It's powerful enough that if you shoot it into the crater, which is the source of all the phantom strength, they'll kind of explain that that's because that is 
their planet's Gaia merged with our planet's Gaia deep into the core. He thinks shooting that will take them out. It actually could make them stronger for reasons that I didn't understand. Yeah, he doesn't believe in Gaia. So what happened is the meteor crashed there. That is basically... I'm going to put this in Star Wars terms. This is the rebel secret base on Yavin, and Zeus is the Death Star, and Hein believes just military might will kill the Phantoms. I mean, when they shoot a Phantom, it blows up. He believes this big gun will go in there and kill all the Phantoms because they're where the meteor crashed. You know, forget Gaia, forget spirits. This is where the meteor landed. This is the origin of the Phantoms. And so if we kill them, they'll go away. But there is a dropped line by Dr. Sid that when we have attacked this meteor before, we kill phantoms, but new phantoms arise. And so the phantom density, the number of phantoms, the population of phantoms stays equal no matter what you fire at it. Hines not hearing that because he's a man of science. It really is. If I was in a war and somebody came along and said, Jesus will save us, and I'm going to go find this weed, and I'm going to find a spirit in a backpack because we use bioluminescent energy and single-cell organisms to power our backpacks, I wouldn't believe them either. I'd say fire the gun. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting dichotomy of science and religious belief where science says that energy and matter can either be destroyed or created. So it's just kind of a constant flow of that energy creating new and dying off with the old or whatnot. That sets up a nice contrast for what we're supposed to be following along with. And it's hard to know. I mean, maybe to me, because it is James Woods and the way they drew the character, he has kind of a bitchy resting face. His, <laughs> he's always got a scowl on his face. The screenplay just kind of screams this guy is not to be trusted. But played a little bit softer, the General Hine character could have almost been somebody that we could empathize with a little bit more. Yeah, I think, again, you can have some sympathy for him. Late into the movie, he's looking at that picture of his wife and daughter he lost. He points out the fact that everyone that works for him, he makes sure that they have the same sad sob story, that they're all united in their grief. But that is not the way to solve the problem. That because you feel wounded is not going to get you to an answer. And clearly, the idea of using military might to solve a spiritual problem is not going to be cohesive. What is surprising to me is that normally science and religion are pitted against one another in movies like this. Science is the thing that creates the monster, usually. Godzilla, after all. But here, no. It's much more in line with spiritualism. And I can't recall seeing that too much. I do think that science, in a way, creates the monster. Because these aliens that we only know of as phantoms, but they were some species like us, were in a war. They were fighting amongst themselves. There was a war, and something happened. You know, the phantom equivalent of a nuke happened and their planet went all krypton and started exploding into space like in superman but i believe the technology of the phantoms their war machines their destruction caused their death and that's why they're angry spirits Perhaps, but I don't feel like that's the point that gets underlined. The scientists are the good guys here. Aki, Sid, these are the people we trust. James Woods and all his military might and his cannon in the sky, we want nothing to do with. 
but they're weird scientists. It's not like they're scientists pushing hard data. They're scientists pushing religion. It seems to me that General Hine is more hard science than Dr. Sid. No, Sid has done the scientific research. Before the meteor even came, he was talking about Gaia. He wrote a book. He ends up burning it because he knows it's heretical to these people, but he believed for a long time that there is a measurable Gaia force at the center of this planet. He'll be proven right. Which would have played a little bit better to see the younger Dr. Sid, where he would have seemed more crazy spouting off about the spirit of the planet or whatnot. Because now, as much protesting as Hein and crew want to do, look around. You are seeing transparent orange things all around you. Maybe something more than what you may believe or not about people who think spirits exist is occurring right in front of you. So it kind of undercuts what his belief in, this is all just horse hockey, this can't be true. The world is off balance, so clearly, yeah, you don't have all the answers. Maybe we should listen to Sid here. And Sid's plan is, this one's really kind of rough, but why are there eight different spirits? I don't know. Okay. There are eight different spirits. I wondered if it harkens back to something in Japanese culture, the number eight or something. I couldn't tell you. Right. I don't even know why there's one thing. But there are magical talismans that when gathered together will create an energy whose waveform is diametrically opposite to the energy put out by these space alien ghosts. Yeah. And so when you put it together, you get a radiation of the ghost. If you want to ghost bust space ghost whales, (laughs) you're going to put together eight magic talismans. They have eight of them. We just saw Aki collect the weed. It's pointed out that she's infected with the first one. And then there was a fish, a bird, a deer, and some little girl dying in a hospital. That's a killer moment, right? Aki's got to cry and talk about this innocent child. And the voice actress is doing all she can. And the computer graphic people just cannot make that (laughs) stolen puppet face do anything that looks like how she sounds now this might be a slam because this is where it it really starts to become apparent to me that i'm not sure if they did it on purpose but the model for aki seems to be based on bridget fonda (laughs) (laughs) i can see that yeah she always has those dead eyes you know she cannot emote with her eyes at all yeah so (laughs) maybe it's just the lack of technology helping this model out and they weren't going for a bridget fonda look but Man, in in scenes like this where the emotion's supposed to be running high and I'm supposed to feel it, it's just coming off pretty heavy Fonda-ish. Yeah, and so here's where the movie should be. Here's where I think I would really enjoy the film, is I'm with the scientist, I don't buy all this gobbledygook, but okay, you gotta find all of these things. How are they finding them? We don't even know that. They're just kind of punching buttons into a console, and then they say, oh, hey, it's over here in Tucson, or what used to be Tucson. That's really disappointing. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the spirituality in this is all very hand-wavy. I mean, what we find out is Aki wears this chest plate, and that is what is keeping the phantom inside of her at bay. But literally... She's collecting these spirits in her bosom because as they find new ones, they're putting it into this breastplate she's wearing. And so each time she goes, she is the 
carrier of all these spirits. Garbage receptacle, I would say. But yes, same thing. They're just <laughs> throwing them in her. And yet, except when they put them in, she needs a spiritual guide. Thank God she used to date Alec Baldwin's character. Boy, this is an unnecessary addition, right? No, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, there's always a romantic story in any of these. You've got to have the boyfriend-girlfriend I think that the fact that they used to be lovers means a lot, and that he's really? the one who goes down Look to me her. in the eyes and say that this <laughs> means a lot, this romantic storyline, to you and this movie. This storyline means a lot. <laughs> I did it. Oh, you're an excellent poker player. <laughs> this means nothing and should not be in here. Now, they would like for us to believe this is Kate and Leo on the deck of the Titanic, that these are people that we want to see to get together. Is it hot for anyone when they finally have that makeout session at zero gravity? I mean, I gotta know. I know people can be into some weird shit, but I cannot <laughs> believe that anyone on this planet is turned on watching those CGI marionettes try and like find an orifice to put their mouth on. I would bet that Steve Buscemi was probably into it just a little bit. <laughs> you know, listening to the stories, it's actually rather amusing the collision detection software they used would sometimes go wrong and so clothes would just fly off of people and so they'd suddenly be naked mm. <laughs> i would find that hotter than this scene <laughs> it isn't going to do anything for the audience to see these characters in love or not it may do something spiritually to the themes of this movie that love is what helps guide all of these shinto representations into her heart if this is indeed some kind kind of religious parable for the Japanese, then maybe love is the glue that gets it all together. But to me, that is ultra hokey and completely undersold by these non-performances. Well, there's another thing that goes on, and here's it gets a little muddied, and they even admit this in the commentaries because of the various drafts of the script. But you'll notice at the end, the phantom that gives Aki the eighth spirit reaches through her womb she's pregnant and then they had a discussion among the various animators and writers and producers is it gray's baby because they were supposed to have sex there the intent was it's gray's baby but like it's only been a day so could it really be his baby or was she pregnant before then but no matter what she's pregnant and it's the baby inside of her that brings the phantom to give her the eighth spirit. The touching of new life makes the phantom finally realize it's dead. Hmm. Okay. But I'm just saying that that's why the sex scene is here. It is here to impregnate her because the baby will matter. I did not notice that she was pregnant, and I don't know why it's important that a baby be part of this whole exchange at the end. Important to us and as far as we're sucked into the movie i don't know as far as the story goes yeah i mean it's the circle of life as far as the storytellers are concerned they thought that that was a very clever way to say that life will find a way and speaking of that you know walt disney or even miyazaki the japanese walt disney would know that you need humor you need to have funny supporting characters maybe some songs you can get heavy-handed with all the themes and subtext but Kids are watching it. 
It's animated. You want to entertain them. Is there anything for them here? I think Steve Buscemi is given the task of being quote-unquote funny, but a couple wisecracking comments while he flies around is not enough. This movie is in serious need of some personality and some colorful supporting characters. I think Buscemi is about as colorful as it gets. I think one of the reasons I walked out disappointed in 01 is Buscemi was muted and Ving Rhames was muted. I mean, why would you get Ving Rhames for this role? These character models don't even look like the characters, which is something I've come to expect when you look at, like, Pixar, is they always bring some characteristics of their voice actors when they pick a celebrity in. And here... I was trying to figure out who these people looked like because none of them look like they're voice actors. Perry Gilpin is perhaps the weirdest one. To hear the voice of Roz from Frasier coming out of <laughs> this badass Proudfoot. That's because, yeah. Again, I feel like the model was, and maybe why Buscemi was here, was they looked at Armageddon, which was about a meteor as well, and they looked at aliens and those marines, and they said, let's just grab those archetypes and we'll throw them in here. The thing with those archetypes is if you look at Armageddon, they're classic American stereotypes that date back to the Western. And when you have a Japanese culture trying to bring those into their spiritual story, I'm not sure that that works as well. You do have a movie here that is trying to appeal to American audiences by bringing in top name voice talent. But yeah, this is certainly not a kid's film. This is a drama, and that's something I was not expecting in 01. It threw me that this video game movie was going to be this spiritual exploration dramatic film when I went in expecting explosions and lasers and sword fights. I mean, Final Fantasy looked like an exciting game. There's no excitement like that in this movie. There's nothing in this movie based on a game. This movie was not adapted into a game, and I couldn't imagine what kind of game you could make based on this movie. It is the least gamey movie in our video game retrospective so far. Well, there's a little bit of it there. I mean, the setup is there. Go find each of these eight spirits. They could be on different terrains. You're going to have to use different methods to get it. Sometimes you might need the Marines to help you. Other times you might need to put on a special suit and crawl through tunnels or something. I mean, there's tropes of making a video game here. They didn't follow any of them to get here in this video game movie. They're more along kind of trying to make an alien type of movie with the characters we see on screen and ignoring the alien part for the most part of this. And again, that is my big complaint with the layout of this story. Take it for what it's worth, the themes and everything they want to get to, that's fine. The adventure is in watching this team play off one another as they find the necessary talismans to get Aki eight spirits in her body. And the fact that they just randomly decide, hey, we need to go to Tucson, and hey, the eighth one is over here. I don't know how they know that, and it doesn't even seem to matter. And it's on those journeys where characters bond and grow, and you get the camaraderie that makes you even like characters. So cutting all of that stuff out with these dead performances and the shifting of the dramatics and the action away from the phantoms and more to Hein. Again, Hein plants some guys in their team and they're the ones that are killing the other team members. The Deep Six team is being shot at. Aki gets shot and I think Baldwin's character is supposed to be killed because Hein wants them to go down as they're collecting this seventh talisman from this organism in a power cell. 
I'm going with the story, but I'm not grasping onto all of these details either. I can't tell you if these spirits are even one, like this is the only time you'll ever find spirit number seven. No, they're not. Yeah. Or if you could just wait around and find another spirit seven, Mm -hmm. they give that away. That's another thing. It'd be one thing if, yeah, you need these specific things. There's one of a kind, eight of them, go collect them. Well, the eighth one gets destroyed and they decide, oh yeah, we could just make another one. At one point it says, well, we can find another comparable match and we don't have to go into the crater. Well, then do that. I mean, it doesn't seem to be that hard for you to find these things so hit blip blip bloop in your computer and do that i am taken in a little bit by the human drama of the council with keith david as one of the voices there and hein wanting to use the military and this new ruling council in this devastated earth i'm so really surprised that dr sid is like burn your notes let no one know of gaia keep it all in your head And minutes later, they're walking into the council. Well, we got to see about this Gaia thing. Yeah, yeah, totally inconsistent. (laughs) Well, yeah, he's trying to protect her, obviously, but also the idea that the majority of humanity has been wiped out, and yet we still have some sort of Gestapo policing people's beliefs. Why would that matter? Who would care that he's spouting that at this point? Yeah, again, he has standing in this community because he's taken his controversial theory and you applied it to military weapons. They have barriers, they have cell packs, they have the guns they do because he looked at that technology and said, I can adapt that into tools that you can use. So I think they're not going to go after Sid too much. He is protected. But Aki's different because she actually has the phantom in her and Hein is waiting for her to turn. If she's having dreams about phantoms, it means that they're corrupting her. And so he eventually, when they don't die on this reconnaissance mission for the seventh talisman, he's just like, all right, screw it. Let's just arrest them. And I'm going to fake a barrier breakdown, let a few in, and then we can use that, I guess, as an excuse to start firing cannons. Yeah, that's his whole thing is he is so hell-bent on destroying the phantoms. He thinks acceptable casualties would be let the barriers down, let a couple phantoms in, we'll kill a few people, and then they'll see my ways the right way. But they get in, like, the sewer systems or something, and... These are the details that matter. I would argue when you're in the scripting phase, you go, okay, something happens and it overwhelms him, and we'll figure it out later. But they didn't figure it out later. They were trying to figure out how to animate, and they didn't think about making the story... So you just kind of have a foolish character who said, let down the barriers, we'll let them in. Okay, they're in. Uh, crap. I guess we'll all die. But yet I get the gist of it. I mean, it is that he's like, nobody can survive down there. I mean, I get the gist of what he's saying. I can't spell out the technical details. Watching this movie three times for this review, I think they're there if I really wanted to read the transcript of the movie and parse it out. Look, here's the words where they say, blah, 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 they're in the sewer. Yeah, that's not how we want to experience a movie, is having to go reference <laughs> things from an uh, unpublished script. I'm wondering, would music help? Elliot Goldenthal is doing the soundtrack here. We we know his work from, I know it from Alien 3 and several films. I'm not saying, God help me, I'm not saying Disney songs. I'm not wanting Aki to sing about the parasite inside her. <laughs> 
<laughs> but maybe some rock and roll or, or Nine Inch Nails or something to make it hip and exciting. I just feel like so much of this movie is just in stasis. It's just boring. The characters, their faces can't move. The story's not moving. There's just no forward momentum at all. Hey, Ming-Na was in Mulan. Oh, was she? I didn't realize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess she's got some pipes on her. Yeah, you're right, Stuart. This movie is, for me at least, at this point, walking a line of boring me and slightly keeping just enough of me following along with the high-level plot points that I know what's happening on screen in front of me. But it's definitely not pulling me down into the crater with them at this point. Yeah, I'll agree with Justin. It's washing over me. I'm following the story. I can't give you all the whys and wherefores and whatnots, but... I get what's going on. He lowered the barrier, he tried to be deceptive, and it blew back in his face and created the most exciting and somewhat sad scene of the movie. I mean, there's not a lot of deaths in this movie. There was one crew member on that seventh spirit mission who got his spirit sucked out of him. I never even caught his name. He was a red shirt. He was one of the Planet Hind guys. Mm -hmm. It would have meant more if we'd lost one of the core crew We're going to lose all of them in this base invasion where they're trying to go to the crater and the phantoms are everywhere and they're going to crash their rover and Ving Rhames is going to be trapped in it, impaled on a pipe. And then real quick, Steve Buscemi and Perry Gilpin are going to get taken by phantoms. And the scene straight out of the original Alien, I mean, Lambert and Parker's death, same thing. They were going to get supplies and load up the evacuation ship. And the difference is I'm not scared of these phantoms, particularly now that we know that they're just rambling ghosts. You've taken what was little about them that was scary. I also just suspected, I was wrong, but I suspected that even though their spirits get sucked out of them... I'm like, you know, if they're joining Gaia or whatever, they'll just come back at the end. We'll just have an end where they're magically floating around with everyone in some kind of conciliatory happy ending. I just didn't feel in this moment like I lost anybody because they were playing with this mythology of nothing ever dies. This is the part that really does feel like a video game level, you know? You have... Different parts of the team off doing different things. You know, Gray has to run up to the control center to make the crane go the right way so the ship is facing the right way so they can take off. I'm not sure why they couldn't take off and correct from there. And then one of the hooks is stuck on there so the other guys have to go over there and fix the hook part. And yeah, I mean, it's set up as the type of thing where, oh, wow, we're going to get to shoot some alien ghosts now. And that was fun, but you're right. It's They shoot, they disappear, but they're going to respawn eventually anyway, because after all, this is just a game. And I had to laugh, too, because he was like, oh, it has autopilot. And I'm thinking, oh, that means you can die, because we totally don't need you. If there was no other way to pilot the ship, we'd have to keep Steve Buscemi alive. His loss would mean something. The <laughs> fact of the matter is, all the Marines got them to where they needed to be. We're only supposed to care about the lovers. And maybe Dr. Sid, I think he's dead meat, too. He ends up surviving to the end, surprisingly. Yes, we are supposed to care about this team that's dying off, but I'm like, yeah, their utilitarian function is over, and why not get rid of them? And this ending is a little bit confusing. Hein has gone nuts, I guess, because he's going to overload Zeus, and there's other people there like, stop shooting, it's overloading. He's like, yeah, whatever. He doesn't even realize that it's exploding on him, and he's going to die in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's a real fault in your weapon of mass destruction, I got to say. If you hit the fire button too many times, you blow up. <laughs> 
Well, even then, you know, that could have been a fine choice for that character. He believed so much in saving whatever it was that he believed in saving that even if he knew it was going to blow up, he was fine going down with it. But then they ruin that moment at the end when he realizes he's falling and about to blow up. They put a look on his face like, oh, geez, what have I done? Not to mention there's other guys there that are just doing their job. (laughs) Doing their jobs, exactly. But it's a nonviolent way to take care of your enemy that nobody kills him. Our good guys kill nothing. The phantoms respawn, as Justin said, and they're never going to shoot any of these bad troops. His own madness and power hunger will kill him. And so we have pacifist heroes who are out seeking spirituality while the warmongers blow themselves up. Yeah, it's definitely in contrast to entertainment that in Western society is celebrated. The pro-gun culture is just going to be head-scratching here about what kind of climax this is. I also just think that the story has been so muddy, I don't know what I'm supposed to be rooting for. Yes, we kind of have this abyss-like ending where they've been dropped into the center of the world and they've got to just sit there. I think they're literally instructed, just sit there and wait and see what happens. Pretty passive there. And the Gaia itself kind of turns Aki into a new eighth element. She goes into a dream state because of the phantom inside her, I guess. And a phantom comes and is going to rip out her spirit, but goes through the womb, senses new life or senses something because the movie never makes it explicit that she's pregnant. That's only in the commentary. Okay, that's what happened. See, again, I didn't even understand. I thought it was rather than ripping her soul out was turning into something new. Yeah, or transcendence for her, you know? Yeah, when she talks to Sid, and Sid says, you found the eighth spirit, she says, it found me. What's happened is she's being attacked by a phantom, and then the phantom realizes, oh, here, I'm going to be your eighth spirit. I'm going to be what you need to give you this final wave, because... In the movie itself, I would take it as because she was the believer, because she was the chosen one. She was the treasure. But the commentary tells me it's because dead life discovers new life and realizes that these phantoms need to stop killing. Mm, The fertility and method. Yeah, maybe. Maybe that's the way to go. I don't think you need that, honestly. She was already sort of impregnated, if you will, with all of these spiritual ideas. For me, that was a pregnancy enough that she had... Balak Baldwin's baby in her or not was irrelevant. She was also carrying a phantom baby kind of thing. I mean, she was hosting in her a phantom. That's what I kind of took as it touched her and it felt the seven spirits that were already there and was like, oh, I can get hip to this. That's That was my reading of it. Mm. Yeah, what I thought was the fact that she did have that little bit of an affection in her maybe shielded her from the phantom somehow. You know, kind of like in Walking Dead, if you put enough guts on you, you can walk amongst the zombies because they don't smell you. (laughs) Kind of the vibe I was getting. It is the prettiest animation. I do love the tentacles. What can I say? Nobody does tentacles better. There's these big red tentacles. I don't even know what they're trying to grab, but they're coming out of the earth and they're coming down on Baldwin at the same time. And so he thinks he can save Aki by dangling her over the ledge while he gets crushed and and touched and gets his soul ripped out. And that's where it actually 
turns the tentacles and I guess into some kind of antenna that they begin broadcasting the wavelength that's inside her. Yeah, he he was the conductor between her and the actual phantom Gaia, I guess. Yeah, I have trouble verbalizing what he does, but yet I get it. I get that she has the eight spirits and it conducts through him. Somebody had to sacrifice themselves to get this spiritual wave into the phantoms and so he does it so she doesn't have to yeah just looking at it more symbolically that love is the final ingredient and you can have this internal spiritual epiphany but to broadcast it to the world to change the world you do that through loving another person maybe that's what they're going for to me that's corny it reads as corny. I wish I could go along with it. James Cameron makes me believe it in Titanic. You feel an emotional rush. But because we have these hollow performances, because we haven't really understood the rules of infection and all of this mumbo jumbo, I don't get it. As the credits roll and a fake Celine Dion, it's actually Laura Fabian, <laughs> sings The Dream Within. Oh boy. I thought it was a fake Enya, so you say fake Celine. <laughs> It was a real yawner either way. So, Justin Stewart, how spirited do you find the final fantasy, The Spirits Within? Justin. This movie has so many things that I feel like if I was just in a slightly worse mood when I watched it, I feel like I could have just torn it apart and hated this thing. But for the hour and 45 that I sat down with it, it didn't infuriate me. I went along with it. It bored me at times. And I guess in the back of my head, I was like, okay, I'm finally seeing this thing that was touted as the next generation of 3D animation. And as Stuart has said, many thought that this is the way movies were going to go for a while. And thank goodness that hasn't happened. But I've seen it now. I don't think I'm going to sit down and watch it again. There's small things to grab onto here to enjoy. We talked about how good some of it looks. I do think from a visual standpoint, the contrast between the orangey-yellow phantoms and the human blue spirits is looks nice on screen, if nothing else. That's kind of cool. Listening to some of these people that you know their voices from many different projects with these voices coming out of these weird-looking puppets, it's a little amusing at times. But at the end of the day, they forgot to put a backdrop behind this story. There was no stakes. We don't know what happened to humanity or what's left of humanity or who they're trying to protect, yet alone, why are we supposed to be involved with these two people's love story? It feels as hollow as some of the looks in their eyes when it's all over and the credits are running. So if you've never seen it and you're interested in what it's all about, sit down and watch it for a little bit. You'll know if you're into it within the first 20 minutes. If you're not, go ahead and turn it off. But no, I can't in good faith just recommend this to somebody as a good movie. Stuart. I've already shown my hand. I mean, no. From the first scene, I could tell the photorealism wasn't going to translate into a real palpable performance from these actors. It just doesn't sell me on the idea that we're watching a new way to present drama. They can't pull it off. It's an honorable failure. I like people that shoot for the rafters. Sometimes, many times, people don't get there. The DeLorean. This is kind of like new Coke. You know, like <laughs> you tried something good on you. Nothing about it worked. Nothing. 
Nothing about this worked. You tried to get by on some James Cameron greatest hits while you made this technology, which is still in its infancy, and even today isn't there yet. They couldn't make remake this movie today and pull it off, although it might look better. It certainly wasn't there in 2001. And so what are you left with? I mean, I do think that if this had been live action, I still would have a problem with this story. I still think it's muddy, and I still think that this director probably needed some advice from some professional animators or Hollywood screenwriters to really shape this story in a way that more people are going to feel what it's trying to convey. And so workshop it in screenwriting class, and then you can start you know, animating it. But that truly is the biggest problem here. I'll go this far. As a game plot, it'd work. If this was Final Fantasy X, the game, I would have played it, and I think it would have been just as convincing. I mean, we are going to accept this look more on a home console. I think I ask less of video games than I do of movies. I'm far less critical if this were just a game. But as long as they're calling this a movie, it's a not recommend. Yeah, you know, if this was a compilation of all the cutscenes from a game that somebody played... I'd be like, hey, that was pretty great. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, and I think that that is part of this movie's issue, is Sakaguchi was used to writing games, and they're paced very differently. And also, one of the things I kept hearing in the commentary, it was too long, it was too long. You can have four hours of cutscenes in a game. I know many games that do, but you're seeing them five minutes at a time over the span of hours of play. It's not like you're sitting there pacing. It's totally different when you're watching scenes days and weeks apart, depending on how hardcore you're playing the game. He wrote this like he wrote games, and he knows how to write games very well. But it did impact this movie, and the fact that they were cutting and rewriting in the middle, and that they had various ideas going different places, makes this a muddy story. That said... I do think, Stuart, you're way too harsh on these graphics. I think this is one of the best-looking CGI films I've ever seen that doesn't have a kiddie style. Pixar? Those all have a kiddie style. Okay. Every single one of them. I mean, those are G-rated, Disney-owned films. They are all ages, and we'll someday discuss how I feel about some of the others than The Incredibles, but... I feel like that is a very kiddie style that does not go to this level of detail in regards to the shading of skin and the use of textures. I would say Beowulf looked better than this. I may put them on par, though. I might say it looked as good as this. But we have good actors. The one I forgot was Ming-Na. I lost her in her role because... Her voice, I guess, isn't all that distinctive, as compared to Steve Buscemi and Ving Rhames and Perry Gilpin, who are all very unique voices. And Alec Baldwin, he is also a very unique voice in a different kind of way. And they use him all the time. I, every time I hear a commercial for a car or a luxury item, they're using Baldwin. Yeah, exactly. That's why I say he has a special voice. And same with Keith David. He also does credit card and car ads. 
So when you get Ming-Na, she's just a more generic voice, but she does very well in this role. I'm actually carried on an emotional journey. I came into this movie kicking, screaming. I said to Marjorie, I can't take a phone. I can't take a computer because my memory is this is dull as shit. And so I actually took my notes on paper because I wanted zero distractions because I just remember being really bored in 2001. And I walked out going, you know, the movie has problems. It definitely has problems. But it's not that bad. I kind of dig its hippie vibe, even if I can't point to all of the mechanisms that, you know, the thermal exhaust port right below the main port. I don't have that scene, but I get what it's doing. I'm going to give it a weak recommend. I think that this thing has a lot going for it. I think you may not love it, but it's definitely got some admirable attempts and it makes me want to go see more anime mm. that may explore this kind of concept in a better way. Throw a rock, you'll hit a better one. I've never seen a more expensive anime, but I just feel like, yeah, go talk to some of the guys that wrote and directed those landmark animes, and this could have been shaped into something. But his amateurism as a director and as a storyteller is evident. And so, you know, they're not going to continue this in games. They always pride themselves on coming up with new storylines for a new Final Fantasy. Are you going to play more? Are you hooked, Arnie? Do you I am. You will buy Final Fantasy 23? I got to get through the two I'm playing first. <laughs> I think I'll finish 10, <laughs> but I think I'll be done. I appreciate the novelty of this game. I, I think, you know, once every 10 years I could play something like this, but I can't imagine this being a steady diet of something I play. And certainly, I don't think they're ever going to try, other than promotion for the new video game, more Final Fantasy theatrical films. Yeah, I'm not interested in any more stories. I don't want to watch any of the direct-to-YouTube or direct-to-video stuff they've done, but I am into the Final Fantasy universe of games now. And with that, we are going to take one week off of video games so we could go watch a movie that is probably completely made by computer, Avengers Infinity War. Oh, a little <laughs> film. I don't know if you've heard about it. I'm barely <laughs> on my radar. <laughs> Thanos is coming to destroy the galaxy uh, a few weeks early, isn't he? More importantly, we got The Godfather on Friday. Certainly one of the biggest movies of all times. But Infinity War! <laughs> Infinity War! Yeah, how many people are going to be watching Godfather on Friday and not Avengers? <laughs> not many. But the show will be ready for you when you do, and so I do hope you join us. But Infinity War! <laughs> Arnie has gone beyond code Spider-Man. For any of our Marvelicious Toys listeners. I may have bought that Hot Toys life-size gauntlet, Justin. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> may have means definitely did. Yes, it does. And considering <laughs> another one. <laughs> but we'll be back with our controllers in hand and pressing our D-pads in two weeks with Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. Maybe the first Jake Gyllenhaal film we've reviewed at Outplay? I can't think of another. And then the week after that, Wing Commander. But come on, we'll talk to you next week with Infinity War. And until then, game over. You think we're going to get out of here alive? I mean, I wonder if anybody else has gotten out. You think anyone's made it this far? Ow! Jeez. 
Jane, do you mind if we stop talking? I'm trying to concentrate here. Get us out of here, Neil. Sir, I would love to, but Just I... do it! Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Just so you know, I agree with the let's get out of here thing. Duly noted. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another new movie review podcast. General Hine, you have to listen. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other video game movies, including Resident Evil, The King of Kong, The Wizard, Super Mario Brothers, Street Fighter, Double Dragon, Tomb Raider, Rampage, and more. Aki, can you hear me? Also at our site, you can find hundreds of other movie reviews, including Star Wars, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Independence Day, The Avengers Films, Back to the Future, Batman, Superman, The Fast and the Furious, and more. Their message still eludes me, but they're coming faster now, and that can only mean one thing. The phantoms inside me are beginning to win. Do you want to continue? Insert money now to keep playing, now playing. I just... I wish I could believe they're in a better place. Now Playing Podcast is a show without any sponsors or ads. We rely on support from listeners like you to keep Now Playing operating. She needs a sympathetic spirit to help hold her in this world. And I can think of no spirit better suited for that task than yours. You can donate to the show and, as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Over 150 bonus movie reviews are available to choose from on the Now Playing Podbean page, including Alien, Night of the Living Dead, Jurassic Park, Ghostbusters, Indiana Jones, Lord of the Rings, Psycho, Troll, and more. If you're going to get us out of here, you better do it now. Find a full list of available bonus shows at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. The cost may be the entire planet, sir. But it must be done. You can also join the Now Playing Patron campaign through our Podbean site. Patrons of $10 or more get a new exclusive movie review every month. Plus, even more perks, including one where you can pick a movie for our host to review. Find the details on our website. Now this is very interesting to me, Dr. Sid. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss these movies and games with other listeners. There hasn't been life here in years. Well, there is now. If you want even more Now Playing reviews, place your order now for the first Now Playing book. Underrated movies we recommend. Get reviews of 125 films our hosts love. You can order the book by clicking the banner at the top of our homepage. Yes, I read you. This is wonderful. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini reviews. Links to our social media pages are available on our homepage. Nice to see you too. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I want what life I have left to mean something. Now Playing Credits, read by Brock. You heard the man. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with the motion pictures reviewed or otherwise referred to herein. All movie clips and are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of Venganza Media Incorporated and may not be used without the express written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Remember what happened to Galileo? They threw him in jail because he said the Earth was not the center of the universe. 
could happen to us. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Enganza Media Incorporated. Our ideas are unpopular, Hockey. If you have any notes or records that could be used against you, destroy them. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2018, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Don't leave me, Gray. You've been trying to tell me that death isn't the end. Don't back out on me now that I finally believe. And directed. Don't you have a program that can tell you? Karanabu Sakaguchi. <laughs> Pardon everybody. Sakaguchi, I know. Uh, Japanese is at least better because the vowels sound like the vowels. <laughs> yeah, but they always have the different emphasis. It'll be like, no, Hiranobo, Hiranobo, Hiranobo. Are you on Saka Kibara? Hiranobu Sakaguchi. Hiranobu Sakaguchi. Hiranobu Sakaguchi. He's not famous enough to actually have a YouTube video. I gotta get the computer voice. <laughs> and Motonori Sakabari. Sakabara. Sakabara. <laughs> no, it's there's Saka another K Kibara. in there. Saka, Saka Kibara. Let's see. Now Saka Kibara. Saka Kibara. I think you're adding something. No. Let's see. He's, there's nothing in. Yeah, he hasn't done anything. And Matanori Sakaki Bot. I I almost had it and then you started laughing. (laughs) Oh, right. I screwed it up. (laughs) Sakaki Bot. Sakaki Bara. (laughs) Delicious. I was there just this last Friday. They grill it right in front of you. I follow James Woods on Twitter. I actually think this was him. I don't think there was a General Zeus. I think it was just James Woods. Let's fire the Death Star. <laughs> I don't know if you meant it to sound that overtly sexual. At least you didn't say joystick in hand. You said control pad in hand. <laughs> we'll be grabbing our control pads and mashing our D buttons. 